You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right. Well, good morning, all you people. Glad that you are here. For those of you watching and listening online, thank you for tuning in as well. Excited to be back with you for another round of Coffee Cup Faith. We're going to begin this morning. I'm going to conduct a little social experiment on you. I'm not going to give you any information. I just want to see your reactions to various pictures that I'm going to show you and calculate a little bit of data as a result of it. Here's the first one. Okay, good. How about the next one? There's a real dilemma here. You know, do you equal it out with the gallons or, or, or do you try to go for the dollar amount and overshoot, blow the whole thing? How about this one? This next one is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, equal amount of laughter and anger. I like that, that's, that's helpful. How about this one? There's, this one requires a little bit of explanation. All the lights are off right now in this picture. That's, that's what all the lights off looks like. Yeah, so there's, there's uh, all of these, all these photos evoke this, this level of like angst or maybe even for some of you just like straight up anger, right? Seeing things that are woefully incomplete. It's just very off-putting. And as it turns out, there's actually a psychology to this. Our brains, as it turns out, pay more attention to things that are not completed than they do uh, completed. We're, we're more interested and focused on things that are not finished. Uh, this is something in the world of psychology known as the Zygarnik effect, uh, first discovered by a Lithuanian Soviet psychologist named Bluma Zygarnik in 1927. Uh, Zygarnik noticed uh, as she was out to eat uh, one evening that uh, there was a group of, of about five gentlemen that were seated at a table and a waiter came to take their order. Of course, this is 1927, so there's not like, you know, tablets and, and, and technology. Everything is handwritten. And they began to give this order. Everyone ordered their stuff, and it was all very complex, lots of different little uh, changes and, and nuances, and the order or the, the waiter didn't write any of it down at all, just had it perfectly memorized, came back, uh, checked in on them occasionally, had other tables going. As soon as it was ready, he came over and got the meal and gave it to them. Everything was perfect. It was just really pretty amazing uh, watching him do all of this. And about 30 minutes after they had paid and left, one of the men came back into the restaurant. He was, he was uh, con- concerned that he might have left his wallet somewhere on the table uh, where they were sitting. And so he, ca- he comes up to the waiter and he says, excuse me, sir, I, I uh, think I may have left my, my wallet. I was wondering if you could help me find it. And the waiter said, I'm sorry, who are you? And the guy said, oh, I'm, I was one of the five gentlemen uh, that, that sat over there. And he said, I'm sorry, where? And he said, you remember, I was the one that had the, the steak, and I ordered it a little differently with this special sauce. And the guy was just like, I, I'm sorry, I, no, I don't know who you are. Just show, show me where you were sitting, and I'll ask the, the management. And, and Zygarnik realized that for as in tune as he was during the order, as soon as they had paid and gone about their business, he sort of wrote that off and moved on and flushed it out of his brain completely. 
And she began to hypothesize that uh, actually your brain, once you begin a task or, or some kind of, of project, it opens a loop in your mind. And if you are interrupted or have to go off and do something different, and that loop remains open, your brain throughout the day will send you friendly little reminders, hey, don't forget about that. Don't, don't forget about that over and over again. And it just sort of annoys you, right? That you haven't finished that one thing. And you gotta, I got to go back and get that done so I can move on with my life. Yeah, someone in the back uh, raising their hand like, yes, Lord. Uh, everyone has experienced this probably with laundry. This is one that I think illustrates this well. Uh, laundry is a multi-step task. You have to put clothes in the washer and then, of course, within a reasonable amount of time, keyword there, reasonable, uh, take the laundry out of the washer and put it into the dryer and then begin the dryer process as well. And that time between washing and drying is usually not just like a, f a few moments. You know, we've, we've landed on the moon. We're taking pictures of other universes. We haven't figured this out yet. A, a washer and a dryer that just does it all. I, I, where are the engineers? Make our world a better place, please. Uh, we wouldn't have to do this. But, uh, but, but uh, what happens is if you start laundry, typically you will go about your day and at some point you'll go, oh, I forgot about the laundry. And then you'll run in and put it into the dryer. It's because it's an unclosed loop in your brain that you have not yet marked off. And the Zygarnik effect says your brain cannot stand the lack of completion. And here's the deal. TV producers and marketing firms understand this. They know about the Zygarnik effect. They weaponize it to use it to their advantage. If you've ever been watching a TV show uh, late at night, of course, I don't. I read my Bible and pray. But... Um, <laughs> But if you have ever been uh, watching a TV show at night, that was a joke, by the way, if you're a guest with us, uh, just, just to be clear about that. Um, you, you've, you've likely gotten to the end of that episode, right? And you're just, you're, you're, you're so invested in it and, and you cannot wait to see what's going to happen. And it gets to this pivotal moment in the show and then nothing, right? Blank screen, the credits begin to roll, and let's be honest, you're not the responsible adult you hope everyone thinks you are. You click play next episode, even though it's like midnight, because your brain cannot stand the lack of resolution. We need completion in our lives. It's something that we are naturally wired to desire. And so it should come as great comfort to us this morning that our coffee cup verse is all about completion. It's a verse that reminds us of God's ultimate commitment to completing that which he began. And so let's do the reveal. You might know which verse this is just by me saying that. But we're going to be looking at this morning Philippians 1.6, which says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then on the back here, it's got this clever little, the best is yet to come which I think is a little silly, but it's fine. It holds coffee none the same. The best is yet to come. This is a verse that um, is usually meant to encourage another Christian, an individual. We, we sort of quote this verses to our uh, friends or our brothers or sisters in the Lord, and, and we do so to encourage them, to remind them that the work that God began in their life at the moment of salvation, the moment you believed the gospel and were born again, that he will continue to do that work through the process of sanctification, wherein God is shaping you more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. 
and that he will continue that work until it is completed, and that will happen ultimately at the day of Jesus Christ, which is a reference to his second coming. Now, I want to say up front, like last week, that uh, this way we apply this verse and utilize this verse in our sort of day-to-day lives is not theologically wrong or inaccurate. God will, it is true, he will bring all believers to a point of completion or perfection uh, at the day of his return in the, the final resurrection when we're given new heavenly bodies and we reign with him forever. That is a true uh, theological reality. However, Considering the context of our passage this morning, I'm not totally convinced that that's what Paul is saying here. I'm not totally convinced that Paul is is meaning this to be a sort of individual encouragement. This verse falls within the book of Philippians, or probably more accurately, the letter to the Philippian church. Uh, This was a letter that was written to a specific local church in the city of Philippi, written by the apostle Paul while he was uh, ironically in prison. And uh, Paul does a lot of things in this letter. He writes to thank this church for their generosity. That's a major part of this letter. They, they had both given him gifts financially to support his ministry and his church planting uh, efforts. They had also sent him personal help in a man named Epaphroditus. Uh, Paul recalls both of these things in this letter, Philippians 4.18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Um, The major portion of this letter, understand this, to the Philippian church is Paul expressing gratitude for them for that local body of believers. Not the universal church, but for the church in Philippi. Now, verse 6 falls within the context of of what we would call a pericope. It's like a one chunk of thought. Uh, In verses 3 through 11, and 3 through 11 constitute a prayer that Paul prays on behalf of the Philippian church. So understand this, Paul is not so much talking about individuals in this verse, as much as he's talking about the entirety of the Philippian body, a local body of Christ. And so when you consider Paul's prayer, as we are going to this morning, what I think we find is a very practical and certainly a very helpful outline for how to pray for a local church, because that's really what this is. It's a prayer for a local church. And so I've titled the message this morning, How to Pray for Your Church. Very simply, how to pray for your church. Whenever we think about or talk about prayer, the act or discipline of prayer, usually it's in the context of praying for another individual, whether it's for healing or intercession or some other need that they are are requiring. We will go on behalf of another brother or sister and pray for them. Rarely do we ever talk about or emphasize the value of praying for the church or for an institution. Uh, I went this week, this past week, to pray for Southwestern Seminary. This is where I attend uh, doctoral studies, and uh, we have a time of prayer every Monday for staff and uh, for students and friends of students, and just to pray for God's blessing. There's been a lot of administrative shakeup there, and, and so we are going on behalf of the institution as a whole to pray. Uh, this, this value of praying for churches or institutions is actually quite high in the New Testament, and it's something that we see demonstrated uh, m- more than once. And so this morning, what I want us to do is walk through three simple ways 
that we can pray for the local church that we belong to. And if you're watching or listening online and you belong to another local church that is not City on a Hill, uh, then by all means pray for your church. Everything that we're going to talk about will apply to you as well. But we should regularly pray for the church in which we uh, exist. And so let's look at three ways that we do that, three ways in which we can pray for the church. Number one, we pray gratefully. Notice in verses three and four, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. The, The basis then, understand this, of this prayer is to give thanks He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, all of you. That is the foundation then of the prayer. The thing that underlines it is a a position of of, of gratitude, a a posture of thankfulness. That word in verse 4 for joy, it's the Greek word kara, and it's a, a word that means something like joy or gladness or rejoicing, but it carries with it the connotation of thanksgiving or gratitude. In other words, it's a joy that reverberates outwardly from a grateful heart. He goes on in verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, it's, it's right. It, it, it's, it's reasonable that I feel a sense of gratitude and thankfulness when I pray for you. But let's be honest about something. It's church. We should be able to be honest. It's a safe place. Praying gratefully is easy when life is easy. But what about when life is hard? What about when things aren't going the way that I think that they should go? What about when there is tension in my relationships? Then how difficult does it become to pray with gratitude? I I think this is one of those things that the... The Bible does uh, quite a bit, actually, with regard to praying gratefully or worshiping joyfully or serving with, you know, gratitude or, or thanksgiving. It's, it's these sort of actions or disciplines of the faith that are attached to a, an emotional uh, state, if you will. And, and it's difficult because they're commandments, but it's like, how do you command someone to be joyful, right? Like, that, there's something that has to happen in the heart a technology of the heart that has to take place that, that is beyond my or any human capability to change. To ma- you can't just make someone decide to be joyful. Joy is a, is a response to something. Gratitude is a response to something. And yet the Bible does command us to do these things. And so I want us to wrestle with that a little bit this morning and talk about at least two instances where it might be more difficult for you to pray for your church with gratitude given your personal context. There's two of them that we find in uh, this letter. First of all, let's deal with gratitude in times of public dispute. Gratitude in times of public dispute. Let me just say up front, That any time you're dealing with a group of people, whether they are redeemed or not, Christians or not, you are going to deal with disputes and divisions. It's going to happen, right? We all all have a sin nature. We're all going to create problems. It's a reality that we must be willing to accept and face. Sometimes 
Your sin nature will cause you to act in harmful ways, and sometimes it will become divisive in the body, and disputes will arise as a result. This is just a reality of church life. And and here's the deal. Because we love one another, there are people in our community that we love. When those people are harmed because someone else's sin nature flares them into a moment of offense, it's very easy for us to get frustrated with that person uh, and, and very difficult to be grateful for them because of the offense that they have caused, either against ourselves or someone else we love. And yet, this is exactly what was happening in the Philippian church. There were two women, uh, high-profile leaders in this church who were apparently at odds that had gotten into a fairly public disagreement, and Paul addresses it just right on its face, Philippians 4.2. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. Which, by the way, I mean, like, just imagine being those people. Like the, the excitement of like, hey, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Call the church together. We're going to read it out loud. And you're like joyfully anticipating hearing it. And he's like, and by the way, Euodia and Suntuke, quit being, quit being such, uh, you know, nuisances to one another. And you're like, what? How, how did he know about that, right? They were in a dispute. And Paul's imploring them to come together peacefully. And I say high profile because... This is a very public address, very public nature of addressing them. Uh, you, would, you would expect that if these were just regular church members, Paul probably wouldn't have dropped their names in a letter, right? He was otherwise a mature believer. Uh, instead, he probably would have given just some general encouragement about unity and, and you know, uh, putting, to, putting to rest disagreements or whatever. But the fact that he calls them out by name suggests that they were well-known, and therefore this dispute was well-known, and to not address it then would be to essentially ignore the elephant that was in the room. So so get this, this was a time of, of public dispute within the church, and yet still Paul has joy and gratitude when he thinks about the body as a whole. So I want you to get this. Listen to me when I say this. This is so important. We can never let disagreement with other brothers or sisters over cloud our love for and appreciation for what God is doing here. We can never allow that to happen. The enemy would love nothing more than that, for that to happen. And and, and here's the reality, it's gonna happen. Dispute is going to happen in the body of Christ. It has happened in the past, it will happen in the future. We live in a contentious age. There are more things every day for us to disagree on. There is no shortage of problems for us to have disagreements over. We can always find problems with something. I believe that. I believe that is the human condition. It reminds me of the story of the man who was shipwrecked on an island and spent several months on the island. And, and a, sh- a search party comes to his, Mike knows where I'm going with this. A search party comes to his rescue. And they come onto the island and they see this makeshift shack that he's put together. And they say, what is this? And he says, well, this is my home. I mean, I've, I've been on this island for like three months. I needed, I needed shelter from, from the elements and I needed a place. You know, I wanted to feel like I belonged somewhere. 
And they're like, well, this is really impressive, man. Uh, you know, this is really incredible survival skill. And they, they kind of look out the window and they see another structure just down the way. And they say, well, what, what is that? And he says, well, that, that's my church. I'm a believer in the Lord. And, and every Lord's Day, even though I'm by myself, I, you know, I'm committed to, to gathering and, and to worshiping and, and to being, you know, a, a good, godly Christian. And they said, wow, I mean, the faith in you is just so evident and so incredible, so, so tangible. And then they look further down, they said, but so what is the third shack down there? And he goes, never mind that, that's my former church. <laughs> Everywhere there is a person, there is a problem. And the sooner that I can connect with the reality that I am no better than the person that I disagree with, the sooner I am able to pray for my church with gratitude in the midst of public dispute. It's hard but it is possible. Second, let's talk about gratitude in times of personal difficulty. What about when life is just hard, right? Maybe not public dispute, but life is just hard when, when, when it's not going the way that I think it should go, when I have to do things that I don't want to do, when I have to accept things that I don't want to accept. What about when, when I have to endure things that frustrate me? I mean, can we just be honest? Let's put down the churchy religious facade and just life is annoying sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, amen. I mean, it is. It's just annoying. Sometimes life is annoying. And those things that frustrate me, that annoy me, or that inconvenience me, make it really hard for me to pray with gratitude in the moment. It could put a real damper on my joy. But this is something that Paul faced as well in the midst of this prayer. Remember, he was writing this letter from prison. He was imprisoned while he penned this prayer for the Philippians church with gratitude and joy. Beyond that, he lacked uh, financial support for his missionary and church planting efforts. I mentioned a moment ago that the Philippian church had given to him financially for uh, ministry purposes, but uh, they were in fact the only church that gave to him for missionary purposes during this time. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4 verses 14 and 15. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So Paul, not well supported financially, he's in prison, and yet still he is praying from the position of gratitude. Now let me give you a truth, and I want us to work through this for a moment. And I hope this will be helpful to you. Praying gratefully is only possible if I am personally grateful. Praying gratefully is only possible if I am personally grateful. In other words, it's hard to pray with thanksgiving for a church that I have no real feelings of gratitude towards. And let me qualify that by saying, I don't think that people who are ungrateful for City on a Hill are all bad. There are some people who are just ungrateful people and, and they need to probably work through that. But sometimes I think it's just easy to be ungrateful because you've never really experienced anything life-changing that births gratitude within you, that naturally produces gratitude as a result. Some of you come to church you know, on a somewhat consistent basis because you're in the Bible Belt or maybe you like the routine of it or the tradition of church. Maybe you were looking for world-class Bible teaching and you couldn't find it anywhere, so you ended up here. Um, <laughs> some of you have just never plugged in and, 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 and you, you, 
you know, have never really engaged with the life-changing things that happen here. And, and if that describes you, let me just say to you up front, I am glad that you are here. I don't want that to sound like a complaint. I'm truly glad that you're here. I think getting to church, the process of waking up on a Sunday morning, getting ready, if you have children, that's like a mega multiplier, uh, getting into the car and making it to church in some reasonable amount of on time is in and of itself a miracle of God. I believe that, I really do. I, I seriously, I, I, there are so many things in opposition to church and the gospel, both in the physical world and certainly in the spiritual world. And so I want to acknowledge to you that if you are here for any reason, for any reason, good or bad, I'm glad you're here. Truly, I'm glad you're here. But I also want to acknowledge that it's going to be much harder for you to pray with a deep sense of gratitude for a place you've never really been impacted by. This is going to be difficult for you to do. It would be like like having that burning desire to go on Google and leave a five-star review for a, a, an elegant restaurant where you've only ordered coffee. You're like, yeah, coffee is all right, bathrooms are nice, two stars. I mean, like you, but you never, you never tried anything. You're not rushing to social media to tell everybody about it because you've never been impacted by it. You've never eaten the food there. You've never experienced the full experience. And, and some of you here, let me just say, have been impacted by this place. You have, yeah, absolutely. Your whole life has been changed. Some of your marriages were saved. Some of your marriages weren't saved, but your life was saved in the process. You were walking in freedom from addiction, some of you. Some of you have overcome so many things because the Spirit of God through the ministry of this church has just impacted the mess out of you. And so for you to pray for this church means to pray with tons of gratitude because if not for this church, you would be in a very different place than you are right now. And here's the thing, as your pastor, I want that for all of you. I want that sentiment for all of you. Maybe not all of your marriages are broken. Maybe you are not all facing addiction, and that's fine. Praise God for that. But you do have sin. You do have sin. The Bible says we all do. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And it is affecting you. It is affecting your life. It is affecting your family. It is affecting your loved ones in ways more than are, are what you even realize. And so I want to encourage you that if it is difficult for you to pray with gratitude when you think about City on a Hill, if it doesn't spark a deep sense of thanksgiving that you are here and a part of this, it might be because you're just not personally grateful because you've never done anything but order the coffee. And I want to say to you, order an entree and feast here. Get in, jump in, get involved and watch the Lord work in your life in ways you never dreamed were possible, that you weren't even aware were possible. Amen. And watch that produce in you naturally gratitude. I can't command you to be grateful, but what I can do is encourage you to plug into the things that will naturally birth gratitude in your heart as a result of being a part of them. When we pray for our church, we pray gratefully. Second, we pray confidently. Look at verse 6. This is where we really connect with our coffee cup verse this morning. Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Knowing the context now, prayer for a local church, uh, we can understand why this is not about an individual. We're talking about the good work that God began in the context of a local church. When he says, I love this, that he who began a good work in you, the you in the Greek language is plural. 
So you could translate this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in y'all will bring it to completion. Yeah. He's talking about the body, the local body in Philippi, the Philippian church. In fact, right before this, in verse 5, he talks about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, he's referring to the reality that since this church was planted in Philippi, they have been committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ since day one. And I love the word here, partnership. It's a really important word in the Greek language in the New Testament. It's the word koinonia. It's translated here as partnership. It's often translated in other places in the New Testament as fellowship. And I think we really do, you know, as just a lover of words, I think we do a disservice to this word as Christians in the modern world because we more or less use this word to mean socializing, right? It's like Christian socializing is... You know, let's have some friends over and let's grill out and we'll put the football game on and we'll fellowship, right? It's like friendship that's been baptized. You know, (laughs) Christians, we always have to have our own word for everything. We can't ever just use the regular word. We have to have like the Christian version of it. We don't have friendship in the church. We have fellowship. I think this is just a really weak understanding of this word. Uh, Fellowship is so much more than socializing. It really is a partnership that centers itself around a common goal. And it's a little bit low-hanging fruit, but I'm going to go there anyway because I just, it's, it illustrates it so well. Uh, but, but if you're familiar at all with the first book or movie of the Lord of the Rings series, The Fellowship of the Ring, um, you get a really, actually, I think, clear picture of what a fellowship is intended to look like. If you've seen the movie or read the books, they, the fellowship were not friends. In fact, in fact they, were, they were enemies to some degree. Some of them hated one another. They had all kinds of cultural differences between each other, and they were hostile and even prejudiced against one another because of those cultural differences, particularly the dwarves and the elves, right? But they have one common goal that binds them together, which is to destroy the ring of power. And that goal brings them into a partnership that ultimately ends up resulting in these very deep and yet highly unlikely relationships with one another. See, Tolkien understood this term. He was a linguist, a philologist. He was also a believer. Uh, He understood what koinonia actually meant, and so he illustrates it quite well in his story. That is intended to be what the church is like. Multiple cultures, some of which are hostile to one another, with tons of differences in virtually every manner imaginable, yet with the common goal of the gospel uniting us to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that partnership binds us into very deep and unlikely relationships along the way. And what Paul is saying here is, I am sure that God will bring to completion the work that he began when he established this koinonia, this partnership in the gospel in this local church. He is going to bring that to completion. It was true for the Philippians, and it is true, I believe this confidently, for City on a Hill as well. We can pray confidently when we pray for this church. We can pray confidently that God will bring this partnership united together for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to completion. You can be certain of it. Paul says, I am sure of this. That that word in the language for sure, it's the Greek word patho. It's a word that means to be persuaded. It means at one time I wasn't sure of it, but now I am sure of it because I've been persuaded. And the question is, what was Paul persuaded by? 
What persuaded him? It was the previous work that God had already done. This wasn't blind faith, right? It's not like let go and let God. Jesus, take the wheel. No, Jesus took the wheel already. It's already been done. We've experienced this. We know this. So get this. Understand the progression here because this works really, really nicely together. God is working in the church, in the koinonia of City on a Hill. And when I, as an individual, survey that work, it, it brings to me gratitude. I'm grateful for the work that he's done, not only in my own life and my family's life, but in your lives as well. And so I can pray gratefully when I pray for this church, but it also means I can pray confidently because I've seen him do this work before. I can be sure he'll do it again because he said he would. That's why we sing songs like the one we sang today. Do it again. I've seen you move, and I believe you will do it again. Because you're faithful. You have a trustworthy track record. So when we pray, we pray gratefully for all that God has already done, knowing that what God has already done, we pray confidently, expecting that he'll do it again. And last, we'll end here, we pray specifically. Specifically. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. So he asks for some specific things here in this prayer. It's important that you get this. Praying specifically matters a great deal. It is how we are commanded to pray. Jesus' model for prayer is very specific as well. We are to pray not in generalities, but with specific request. Not, Lord, thanks for this church, bless us, amen, right? If that's what you're doing, that's, okay, that's fine. It's better than not praying. So let me just say that. Like, it's, that's better than, than not praying at all. But when we pray, whether for the church or for an individual, we ought to pray for specific things. Things that we want to see our loving Heavenly Father do. He may not always do them. He may not always do them. But we are told to do it, to pray with specificity. Paul reiterates the value of this type of specific prayer in chapter 4, Philippians 4, 6, another very well-known verse. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your general vibes be made known to God. No, he says, let your requests be made known to God, specifically. In other words, we are to pray, he says that, in everything by prayer and supplication. And we are to do it gratefully, he says, with thanksgiving. And we're to not be anxious about anything, but rather we pray confidently. And we pray specifically, let your requests be made known to him. Now, the question is, what does Paul pray specifically for in chapter 1? There's two things. Let's unpack them quickly. Number one, he prays for greater love within the church, greater love. First, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. This is, again, another one of those words that unless you are quoting a Francine Rivers book, you're probably not using the word abound much in your day-to-day vernacular. Uh, It's a word that simply means to increase or be over and above what is normal. In other words, he is saying, my prayer for this church is that all of you would grow in your love more and more, not only for God, but for others. 
So understand this. This is super important. The church is marked by love. Love is a, an important signifying detail of the church of the Lord. Remember when the, the scribes asked Jesus, this is in Mark and Matthew's gospel, record this. They ask him, they're trying to trick him. And they say, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus hits them with this answer, Mark 12, 29 through 31. He says, the, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is a well-known uh, Hebrew uh, teaching, Hebrew uh, concept called the Shema, something that they were uh, very, very interested in as Israelites, a promise, a covenantal promise that they were to love God with, all, with every part of their being. So Jesus answers the question, what is the greatest commandment? But then he says, and the second is this. And they're like, wait a minute, a second? Jesus is going to give you two of the greatest commandments. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love God and love neighbor. Now, especially for the second part of that, loving our neighbor, Jesus is going to go on and say, actually, this is the way the world is going to be able to tell that you are a Christian by your love for other believers. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He doesn't say, by this, they will know you are my disciples if you make big, bold, religious statements on Facebook. <laughs> if you put bumper stickers on your car or have coffee cups with Bible verses on them. All fine things, right? But that's not how people know that we are his his disciples, but by our love for one another. So, so understand, Paul is praying that this church would grow in their love for God and for others, and we should pray this way as well for our church here at City on a Hill, that we would continue growing in our love for Jesus, and that we would continue growing in our love for one another. Because let me say this, the more we grow in our love for Christ and his people, the more we will obey his commandments. It's true. People want to know all the time, you know, like, what's the secret to living a more godly life? How can I be a more obedient Christian? The answer is actually really simple. We overcomplicate it all the time. It's quite simple. If you want to obey Jesus' commandments more and more, fall in love with him more and more. That's it. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You won't keep him perfectly because you won't love him perfectly. But the more you love him, the more you will keep his commandments. He says in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, obeys them, follows them, he it is who loves me. The greater your love for Jesus will reflect a greater obedience to his command. But there is one other necessary component. If you're going to follow the commandments of Jesus, you need to love him, but you also need to know what the commandments are can't just blindly follow. And so Paul prays for that, not only for greater love, but second, for greater knowledge. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, here it is, with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, not just, he's not just praying for more love, but he is praying with love that is coupled with knowledge. So understand this. You cannot separate the two. You cannot separate love and knowledge and have love nor knowledge or anything that reflects the nature of Jesus. 
Love without knowledge is not love. It's empty sentimentalism. A love that never demands any excellence of anyone, that never holds anyone accountable, that never calls anyone out on their sin, it is not love. That is enablement. As a parent, I love my children. I discipline my children. I have a knowledge of what is right and wrong, and I want them to know that as well, and so my love reflects that. If I said I loved my children and I let them play in the middle of the street every day because I didn't want to inconvenience them, that would not be loving. That would be stupidity. That would actually be quite unloving. Love should always demand God's standards. Love should always be built on truth because God is love and God demands truth. They are always connected. On the other side of that, conversely, knowledge without love will lack the ability to show grace when another person falls short. It will be harsh, it will be arrogant, it will be law-driven, it will be judgmental, it will be full of pride, it will be not at all demonstrating the spirit of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. They're both necessary. The church then must increase, not only in our love for God and for his people, but in our knowledge of his word as well, that we might be able to know how to better love. It's a cycle that continues. And listen to me, when that happens, when you begin to develop a greater love for the Lord and a greater love for what he has said, and you begin to walk in it, look what happens. He says that you will live a life that is pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 11 and says that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, listen, the goal of Christian koinonia, partnership, fellowship, community, is that in the end, you will grow in your love for God and for others, and in turn, you will become a better Christ follower. The, 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 the goal, like the hope, is that at the end of all of this, in, in, in whatever that looks like, or even just take away the end, and let's just say next year, my prayer for myself, for my family, and for all of you is that you are not, by God's grace, the same person you are today a year from now. That the, that the fellowship here, that the partnership unified around the common goal of proclaiming the gospel will be the thing that makes you a better Christian a year from now. And that five years from now, you'll look back on this moment and be like, man, I didn't have a clue of the things that were wrong in me, but I do now. And that five years beyond that, you'll go, I didn't have a clue because the, the onion proverbially will be peeled back layer by layer. And as you walk more and more in gratitude, with confidence, specifically praying for God to do these things in this church, you will become more like the God we worship as a result. That's the beauty. And so we ought to pray for this church. We ought to pray gratefully for the work that God has already done. As we calculate that work, that will give us assurance that he will do it again. And so we pray confidently as well. And we ought to pray specifically that he would increase us in our love and knowledge that we might be, through the messiness of all of this, more like Jesus every day. Rather than, um, rather than continuing to talk about prayer for the little bit of time that we have left, I want to give you a moment to actually put it into action, to actually pray. 
And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you uh, just a few moments of, of, uh, of quiet. Uh, Pastor Kelsey is going to come out and, and uh, just lightly play some, some worship music uh, in the background. And we've got four prompts, uh, prayer prompts on the screen uh, that we're going to show you. And I'm going to just kind of walk through the aisles and pray along with you and give you those prompts as we go. But I would just encourage you, if there's something that really spoke to you or touched your heart this morning, then pray for that. Otherwise, if you would just pray for the prompts that we have up here for this body, for those of you online, for the church that you belong to as well, and then uh, I will come back and, and wrap us up as well. Let's pray together. We're going to begin that God would grow us in our love for one another. of potential disputes or disagreements that we would continue to love one another recognizing that we ourselves are also broken in need of grace we could also pray that God would burden us with a desire to go more deeply into his word to know more about what he has revealed scriptures we'd be more committed to Bible study whether that be personal study or perhaps in a group setting I want to ask you to pray specifically as well that that God would really set us on fire to see the lost saved. There's a ministry here that is so beautiful and powerful and so capable of demonstrating the gospel in really tangible ways. I pray that that he would give us a, a real yearning to see lost people come to faith in Jesus. I would pray that um, the work that God began when he established this koinonia over 30 years ago to bring the help, hope, and healing of Jesus to people who are hurting and lost and broken, that he would continue that work today, that he would grow our efforts, that he would strengthen our resolve and push us further and further into the mission that he has called this body of believers towards and that we would trust that on that day when he returns when every knee bows and every tongue confesses and Jesus comes on the clouds with fire and angels that he would bring it to completion and that he would look at us collectively say, well done, my good and faithful servants. Father, we thank you for this church that you have established, that you have birthed. How we desire to be used by you in every way. Would you grow us in our gratitude as you change our lives? Would you grow us in our love for you? 
and for your people and the knowledge of your word. And would you give us the confidence to continue to pray every day moving forward for your efforts to be established on the east side of Fort Worth here. The gospel goes out to every ear that you desire it to go to. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you all. We have three weeks left of Coffee Cup Faith. It seems like it just started. Today was week five. Yeah, we got one more next week. Week seven, we're going to have a special guest come in and uh, participate in this series. He is a now national treasure, world traveler, one-eyed pirate, <laughs> Dr. Reeves. So, uh, and then I'll come back and wrap us up on the 30th. God bless you all. We'll see you next time.